Hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow travelers along the way. Welcome to another episode of the Avalon Mentors Podcast. afternoon i'm i don't know punchy maybe a little punchy um yeah it's it's day after day of you know we haven't seen we saw the sun here two days ago for a day and before that it was seven days of gray and now we have two days of gray and the temperature is still somewhere in the 40s and it wow it just goes on and on i I remember this from last year that similar thing we had gray and nothing really growing yet and uh Old, oh my gosh so but you know the summer comes it's lovely here it's a lovely state to be in as far as that goes but it, it's it's it gets to you after a while just but you have to earn it yeah that's what it is first i guess good Protestant mentality. yeah yeah i suppose so i remember seeing a video a movie i don't remember the name of the movie but it was about these women that were trying to uh leave the prairie they'd come out as prairie wives and things had gone mm-hmm. so they were all trying to leave the prairie and go back to their families east Right. Very dismal story. Very sane thing to do. Yeah, right. And the one, the main, the, the man that helps them out, um, eventually uh, takes them all back east uh, safely, except for the main girl. But the the point being is that it really depicted this sort of midwestern madness, this gray, bleak, yeah. madness that comes comes on people in the Midwest. I think, uh, especially melancholic mm-hmm. nature. I think it's really harsh. Um, I, I can see where Scots and Irish types, mostly Scots, could come over and be like, oh, yeah, Cumberland Gap, that's beautiful. Yeah, Nashville, Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, that's beautiful. Ohio's pretty good. What the hell is this open plains, you know? <laughs> just mm-hmm. just this miles of kind of nothing, gray weather and, and uh, just yeah. bleak. So. You can deal with, you can deal with the... The, the, the clouds and the mist and the rain and the cold, if you've got green hillsides around you, if you've got variation in the terrain, something's happening, even if geographic, if it's only physically, what's the word, you know what I mean? The, in the scenery, it's there, there's movement, yeah. visual, even if it's only visual, there's something happening. But if it's just straight lines, gray above and straight gray below, yeah, as far as, as, far as a body could move in three days in any direction, uh, my daughter and I were talking about this the other day because you, you know you, you look at this gray sky and it's just as a flat mat of gray it's not even a variation of the clouds and you think do something please rain snow hurricane I don't care something you know um, but no it just it just sits there so but uh, you know I think, I think it does it does get to you after a while you have to make a decision are you going to allow it to continue to get to you or um, are you going to do something to take a stand against a sea of arrows, so to speak? Um, which it's a little, little. Tr- 
But I suppose that's, you know, what a nice segue into our chapter, because again, yeah, it's like dark, we, you said earlier, wandering around in the dark and eating all the provisions. Yeah. So anyway, enough about me. What do you think of me? Uh, we are doing today the chapter of Flies and Spiders, I believe, which is chapter eight, if I'm not mistaken. Chapter V-I-I-I, Flies and Spiders. And the basic synopsis here, we left off last time. Gandalf says, you know, you're going into the forest. You have to go through. You can't go north. You can't go south. And I'm not coming with you. So don't stray from the path. Don't drink from the from the um, stream. Uh, don't talk to strangers. Blah, 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 blah. And hopefully with a little luck, you'll get through. Bye. And the and last chapter ends with they plunged into the forest. <laughs> Uh-oh, I lost my audience. Oh, well, I'm just talking to myself. <laughs> so they plunged into the forest, and that was that. No, that was, the, that was sort of like the end of the last chapter, a very real cliffhanger of a chapter. And we pick up now with them in the forest, walking through the forest and experiencing what that's like. And to make a long story short, sorry to have lost you there for a sec, Hey, it's, it's the damn thing with the phone is that any time a, a notification comes on, it, it somehow res, resets the reception of the stream from the beginning. And so then I get this continuing recycle, um, very, very strange mise-en-en on beam sort of thing of sound. Uh, and it just goes till it crashes. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I'm just giving a synopsis right now of the story. So, All right. Make a long story short, they they get through after various adventures. They get through to almost to the edge of the other other side of the forest, but then they get caught by these spiders, and that's where Bilbo has to prove himself, and he um, he fights the spiders using his sword, sting, and his ring, and he saves the dwarves from almost certain death. That's a basic synopsis of the plot, and there are a number of different gems in this chapter i think that are worth looking at because it, it's a, it's a it's a very claustrophobic very dark chapter i think uh like we were talking about earlier about the darkness of the midwest you know living under this canopy of gray for day after day and not knowing whether you're going to get out or not but this is almost it's almost like being underground the description of murkwood is like being on underground or in a cave it's almost like they got out of the goblin caves and go right back in again uh, the, the two major passages of the work are, are this underground in the Goblin Caves and then underground here in Mirkwood, and then they're out on the other side, almost like a resurrection or birthing image. So I wanted to start off by just talking about Mirkwood itself. Why does, why does Mirkwood exist? What is it? Uh, what has made it so dismal? Um, what do we see in this imagery that, that next to anything historical human culture that we can tell. Okay, so that's where I want to start. What I know of Mirkwood is that it was not always Mirkwood. It was called at one point Greenwood the Great. So in an earlier age, it was a, a green lush forest, but now it's taken on the name Mirkwood and taken on the qualities of Merk, which is a, another word for darkness, an Anglo-Saxon word from what I, I gather. And it's taken on those those uh, qualities primarily because of what's happened in the South with the necromancer. You know, necromancer down in the South has taken up his 
his castle, his domain, his uh, fortress, and his infection, kind of like the dragon infection, has infected all the area around about, including this woods that has reacted to him by becoming much more dark, much more hostile to life, and, and much more like a imprisonment or tomb. So there's that quality. Um, we also know that Greenwood the Great, which is still inhabited by elves up in the north, has a parallel in Fangorn Forest in the south. We find out later in the Lord of the Rings. And that they were both of them part of one continuous forest that has since been defoliated uh, by humans and of course by the forces of Mordor. So really we're looking at something tremendously ancient and something which has seen a great deal of humans and orcs and other creatures come and go but has been infected most recently by this darkness of the um, of the necromancer. What else do we see in that imagery of, of the forest? I mean, I know we know Tolkien loved trees, right? And he used to love his walks among the trees. He was very put out when they tried to take down trees to put up shopping malls and things like that. Um, so he is not a he's not a hostile to trees or an anti-tree person. But he does have images like here and elsewhere, like in the, in the uh, old forest, of trees being hostile to, to humans. Right. right. Exactly right. You know, he's got these, you know, the trees aren't safe things, right? They're, they're perilous. Forests are perilous. They're the, the domain of elves and, and wild things. It's, it's very much in the wild, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, later we see that being the case with Fangorn Forest. Also, it's the case with Lothlorien, for that mm. matter, as Fangorn himself reminds us. Uh, that it's perilous, you know, you're, you know. Um, but Mirkwood has another characteristic, another quality to it, as you're saying. It's murky. It's not only perilous to humankind, as any forest is you know a dark place in the wild but it's it's stifling there's something that's laid upon it it's black it's it's murky you know yeah and i think that's that's just that and i wonder if this is perhaps not uh, there's too many sort of negations <laughs> in my proposed sentence um i wonder if it's similar to you know the image uh, the way that, that Tolkien paints the Mirkwood, if that is perhaps the appropriate kind of image to have for Dante, the beginning of Dante's Inferno. Oh, nice. Yeah. Right. Where he starts out, Nel mezzo camin della nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita. This is a translation into modern Italian. That's not the original, but it, you know, you get the idea. In any case, halfway through the journey of life, like halfway through the journey of the book, at about the midway point we are, um, uh, you know, we find ourselves now in a dark wood. And what does he say? Ai quanto dir qual era cosa dura, esta selva selvaggia ed aspra e forte, che nel pensier rinnova la paura. So I may, it is hard to speak of how, you know, like the, 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 how difficult, what a difficult, what difficult a thing 
that this selva selvaggia, this savage wood, mm. a sense of savagery to it, wildness, in the sense, not selvatico, because Italian has this word selvatico, which is the way we might think of wild, like wild strawberries, probably, selvatiche, but selvaggio is like savage, savagery, savage beasts as distinct from merely wild beasts. I see so something of a, a, a malice of sorts, not only unpredictability, but positive danger. Yeah. Yeah, so so the one is wild and sort of well that's cool, it's wild. And the other is wild. Yeah. Gosh, it's wild, it's gonna kill us. You know, so Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Um that's a good distinction and I like the connection definitely with um with Dante. I'm also thinking uh, Tolkien uh, he certainly was familiar with with um Shakespeare although he didn't like all mm -hmm. the he even wrote about how he didn't like Macbeth. Um but in Macbeth there's that great line where Lady Macbeth says hell is murky. Hell is murky. And it's a really wonderful word murky. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm still going through trying to figure out what, what is the angle. Like, I think I told you before this, I didn't do any legwork for this version. So, um, mm -hmm. but looking for the Anglo-Saxon word here, and I think I just found it. The original Anglo-Saxon Merke, uh, is, um, it means dark, murky, dark, black, evil. So really it's just a direct coming down from Anglo-Saxon word, but it also has to do is used frequently for black deeds of wickedness, right? Black deeds mm -hmm. of wickedness. So you, yeah. um, you have this connection, not just to murk as in swamps and uh, dark mists at night, but also of evil, like real, like murk yeah. is not really nice. It's not like a nice misty Irish morning. You know? Right. It's, it's not evil. It's not shadowy is at least even yes. more benign than that. It's murky wow. and gloomy. There's there's muddled muckiness of you know. Yeah. And does, water's murky, it's it's not drinkable. Water that's murky is not drinkable. And what and what does um later on they call Sauron, they call him the shadow, right? He is he is the murk. Yeah. The, the shadowiness itself. So this is, I mean, it's fascinating that that name would accrue to the woods, the greenwood, the great, and due primarily to the necromancer, Sauron himself. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, you have the dragon in the north as well, which doesn't help things at all. So when they drive the dragon out afterwards, Gandalf says it's a really fine thing. By the way, spoiler alert, they drive the dragon out. So sorry. <laughs> but, but the idea that this woods becomes this murky, dark, sinister, malicious place I, th I think fits very well too with his his theme of encountering a world that's not nice it's not uh, all roses and, and and cheerfulness this image too of, of forests being hostile that's that's something that for us is not as accessible I think as even for his generation because I think our generation generally lives in a very uh, what, what's the word? Um, sanitized. It's a sanitized world that we live in, where we have automatic heat, we have automatic lighting, we can lock our doors, and we're kind of safe and all this. We don't get that sense that the world out there is a, can be a very dangerous for life. 
In fact, we're encouraged by REI and Land's End and places like that to go out in the world, explore the world, experience the world. Isn't the world a great place? We need to, you know, shave all the whales and all that. But we don't seem to reckon with the idea that they used to reckon with for thousands and thousands of years, that the world is nice, it's beautiful, but there are places in it that are really dark, really dark places. And some creatures and some things are tremendously hostile to human beings. It's like that image of Grizzly Man, you know, the movie Grizzly Man, where the guy goes out to commune with the, with the Kodiak bears and it doesn't go well, you know. Um, <laughs> and all the locals, it's funny that, that you know, the locals, the local Alaskan Inuit uh, guides, when they're interviewed, they're like, yeah, that guy was crazy. Because <laughs> <laughs> they know, you know, you don't go slap Kodiak bears on the nose and expect to live. But I think that there is a there is a tendency among many people in the modern era to think either that the nature is is easily ignored or that nature is somehow our playground and we can go out there and get cell phone service wherever we go and not end up like uh you know clark griswold in, the, in vacation wandering around in the desert with his pants on his head um, <laughs> which i don't know for sure but i can't help but think that, that that false thinking about nature is perhaps a byproduct of our attempt to dominate nature that started back there in the 1700s, you know, that, that uh, enlightenment thing. Yeah. yeah, I think that's exactly right, because that's, I mean, psychologically, when you can't conquer something, and you can't conquer nature, man's conquest of nature is a failed yeah. endeavor. And, and, and it shouldn't have succeeded either way. It's an awful thing because man's conquest of nature ends up being man's brutal enslavement and destruction of other man. Mm. Um, um, yeah. But uh, but even with that, when you can't conquer something, what do you do? You make fun of it. You, you pretend you've conquered it. Mm. You, you make it a playground. You make it a plaything. You may, literally make fun of, right? You turn it into something like a hacky sack and you yes. take it around and it's pretty and it's quaint maybe you know maybe you get your thrills climbing you know chalking up your hands and climbing a climbing a cliff face and say that yep. you've been into the wild and some people go into the wild but they tend to be the kind of people who respect the yeah. reality of it whereas the yeah. uh, you know the debutante the, the the dilettante excuse me is what i'm looking for you know who, who goes out you know, like the rei junkie um you know, goes out camping, you know, you've never really, you know, most people, I was, I, I have been disillusioned and shocked and awed when I grew up to meet other people who say they've gone camping or they like to go camping. And what they meant by the word was maybe pitching a tent, maybe taking a camper, but going into some big, essentially playground area, some city park type space where a bunch of people sit around little tiny bonfires in metal rings and drink cheap beer and really close quarters with each other. Yes, that's pleasant, isn't it? That's the sort of get tossed by the buffalo there in Yosemite National Park, you know, or um, yeah. is, is going to end up uh, like the kid in Into the Wild, you know, starving because mm -hmm. he crossed the river or whatever it is, or like Clark. Yeah. Right, and I mean, what I grew up with was like, you're, you're out in the, like, what we called roughing it. Yes. Um, what I think a lot of people that I've since in my adult years encountered would, would, would just not have lived to tell the tale of just really you're out there and you're, you know, it's you and the trees and the, and the, you know, the animals and everything. And you've got to, you survive, you, you live by there, your wits. By your wits and by 
providence and by luck. Exactly. As at the beginning, with a little luck, you'll get through it. This is mm -hmm. a Mirkwood. The experience that Bilbo has in this chapter is a direct experience with nature. Yeah. Not nature yeah. as pleasant paths through Hobbiton, where you go and meet the neighbors, you know, and cheerfully walk uh, in the mornings. But a dark, mm -hmm. grueling sort of survival trek. There's some great yeah. films about this, by the way. Like I said, Into the Wild is one. The other one is, uh, I think, a movie called Wild. It's a, about a woman trying to reform her life as she walks on this trail on the uh, the, the West Coast. Um, but there's another one, you know, th this movie, which is called um, The Impossible. Uh, Naomi Watts and um, Obi-Wan, uh, uh, Ian McGregor. Oh, and young Spider-Man, too, is in there, too. <laughs> the guy who plays Spider-Man. <laughs> But they basically, they're, they're tourists who are there in the islands when the Boxing Day tsunami occurred, you know, back in the mm -hmm. 2000-somethings. And uh, they survived the tsunami wave. And it's horrendous. I mean, very well filmed. And, and an amazing uh, reproduction of that uh, experience. But talk about a, a direct encounter with just how violent and difficult and dangerous nature can be. It's... Mm -hmm. uh, not the pleasant tourist paradise that they had signed up for originally. Yeah. I wonder sometimes too, whether or not that isn't part of our fear as a, as a society, that the world is going to come to an end, you know, the sense that um, the, the environment is going to be lost, we're going to destroy the planet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we fear about that thing because we actually don't have experience with the planet except for in this nice sanitized way. And so we don't see that, on the one hand, we don't see that the planet has perished several times during its history, which is a hard thing to get the mind around anyway. I mean, you look at Snowball Earth or the Pleistocene um, extinctions or the extinction of the Jurassic era or the near-death experience of humanity um, back when we were down to 8,000 people on the planet, uh, or more recently, the starvation of 1317, you know, or right. all, those, all those events where the planet, if we can call it a single entity, was very close to collapse, change and alteration and hostile to humanity like nothing else. When you start experiencing what the world actually is like without all of your gadgets and whistles and gears and without the safety net of being able to be rescued at any minute, you start to experience the idea that the world is very dangerous, a very dangerous place, despite all of our technology. Right. And that's an eye-opener, I think, for most people. Yeah, and that these things can be taken away and lost. They can collapse. They can fall over so easily, mm. so quickly. Yeah. And, and you have to be able to survive but you know i don't want to say that because i think so many people go the the direction of like the survivalist the prepper kind of mindset and, and that's not it is that you live a richer fuller more colorful life when you have a clearer inside outside boundary but you're you're embedded in the world that is real and savage as it is and you're a part of it i think we have this dissociation from the world that I call it a dissociation from the real world. And I think that's why we at one time sort of have a fanciful notion, like a tourist kind of notion of what nature is, uh, and also fear its destruction and, you know, its imminent destruction because we think that it has no power, that it's some fragile thing because we, um, you know, we're, we're somehow 
floating over it in the ether, like above the Jersey State Turnpike or something. It's just here we are watching the world because we're not embedded in it. We're in a ghost floating. We're a ghost floating above it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So and, we don't, and it's, don't understand the cycles of the world, let alone the possibility that the world can collapse and recover, or or even how beautiful the thing is because it is sometimes threatening or threatened. Right, because if you live in, if you live immersed in it, you'll find that you're actually happier and do better, even if your life is shorter, or at least has the risk of being shorter. Which brings us back to our little hobbit, you know, little hobbit. His journey here is, again, I think a direct contrast to his love of walks there in the Shire. But all those walks in the Shire are these pleasant, known, he's mapped them all out, um, decent, non-threatening walks. This is kind of, I mean, yes, he's experienced the goblins. Yes, he's experienced the trolls. But this is really, and and the eagles and and all that. This is really his first direct alone experience with the savagery that the world can offer a person. And so I think that it's it's absolutely necessary that he goes through. I mean, Gandalf even says this. It's necessary Mm -hmm. that you go through. Now, he means... You can't go to the north, you can't go to the south, because the peril is greater. But it's also necessary because if the journey of the Hobbit in general is a journey about Bilbo becoming autonomous and learning how he is capable of greater things than he thought, then he absolutely has to go through that experience of losing it all, of being in the dark, of being in the tomb. And once right. out again, once he has a resurrection, so to speak, which, not to give it away, but you know, we've all read the book, the whole bursting out of the barrels at the end is a resurrection right. scene. Oh, absolutely. Once he has that, um, and yeah, I know he doesn't get in a barrel, but once he has that, he can see the world in a different light. He can see it as something precious, something really precious, not the way Gollum says, but really precious, something that can really be valued and not just um, not just neglected or ignored or even controlled. Can't be right. mapped all the time. Um, the GPS mapping that we do now, I think, is another one of those technologies which I value very much because I get lost a lot. But uh, but I think it's a, it's, a, it's a technology which gives us the illusion that somehow we control the thing because we can see it on a satellite. Right. There's a great scene, I remember, <laughs> out of um, Clear and Present Danger, I think, is the movie, where they're watching in real time this attack that's going on, but then they lose contact with the guys that are being attacked. and like, we don't know right. what's going on. We thought we did, but we don't. We've lost control of the situation. And that's so perfect an image because, yeah, you see it on the satellite and you see it going down and you have no control over it, but you think you do because you're watching. It feels like you do because you can see it. Yeah. And Bilbo loses Gandalf. Then they go in and they can't see, you know, much in front of their face. And then when they do stray from the path, and I'm you know, just skipping ahead through this theme here, they stray from the path. Eventually the dwarves get lost from each other, and Bilbo's alone in the dark, lying down, and he wakes up. You know, he loses consciousness, he wakes up, and he's being wrapped up by a spider. He loses everything, gets, gets removed from him. Hmm. Everything gets removed from him. And that's when he finally does this daring deed. Right. He slays the spider, faces it head on with that's- the dagger. There's a, there's a manliness that comes to him at that point, a thumos that comes to him mm-hmm. that he, he was capable of. Exactly. But even, I mean, even before that point, he is kind of the, 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 
the dwarves are saying, well, he's got better eyesight. You know, he sees better over the river. Um, he, they ask him for guidance. Um, he gets put out with them because they're consuming the goods faster than they should, and they won't last. And he's the one who keeps his mind about him when the rest of them are despairing and thinking this is not going to go anywhere. And then they begin to go off the path with the with the elves, and Bilbo's like, no, don't. You know, so he begins to become the the the, the scout leader. Yeah, but not yet at that point until you're right when he gets he wakes up and he's got the the spider wrapping him up and he's forced by necessity to have to kill the spider and that's when he gives his and it's a very significant scene he gives his sword a name it's a nameless yeah. sword before that or at least its name has been lost and after he does this deed of killing the spider he names it sting which is a name that goes down forever and lore right afterwards and sting becomes the tool not just of bilbo but further generations because frodo uses it as well but it's also significant because that's the moment after he christens his blade that he himself gets christened it's very much like the the siegfried killing the uh, the dragon scene and yeah. after siegfried uh, bathes in the dragon blood and he can he can hear all the sounds of the, of the animals but it's like he's he's been opened up to a newer world, newer consciousness, almost. Yeah, actually, that's a very interesting thing because although it's attributed to the ring, when, when Bilbo puts it on, that's what what, what follows immediately on this when he he follows the you know spider webs and all this, and he gets to where he puts on the ring so he can't be seen after he wakes up from killing the spider. He puts on the ring so he can't be seen. He follows the um the the spider webs to go find the, the rest of the dwarves who've been captured and strung off like flies yeah um to age for a while as you do when you you've got you know freshly slaughtered meat um to be consumed by the spiders later date is that he finds he can hear and understand their speech yes right so right. so there's a similar there's a parallel there to what to Siegfried's experience of being absolutely gives that dragon blood that's a very interesting connection yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's yeah, and and later on he has a similar thing with he can hear the the speech of the elves as they talk amongst themselves, and he has that occasionally he has that that ability to hear things, especially significantly when he's there at the doorway of the down into the dragon's cave, and he hears the thrush. You know, he can he knows what the thrush right. is, and he communicates he not as Bard does later on because Bard can actually understand the real words of the thrush. But he can communicate with the thrush to a certain degree that he knows he tells the thrush you go go tell bard you know go tell somebody um so he he gains this ability which is very much like siegfried's ability to talk with the animals mm -hmm. the imagery the other thing the other the other parallel that i i know leaps to mind immediately is that parallel of red riding hood you know the not not, not mm. talking to animals necessarily but more in the whole the whole woods thing, the whole dark woods and entering into the dark. Leaving the path and all yeah. Of that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The ancient the ancient world and and really the world all the way up until I don't know, yesterday, used to think that the woods was not the safe place, as we said before. It was the, the yeah. dark hostile place. It was not the place where you go and set up a nice little camp among the grizzlies. But rather, it was a dark, hostile place, different, set apart from the world of the city, which was the civilized, mm -hmm. safe, secure world. Right. And so in that conception, when you go into the woods, you're going into a dark miasm of, of chaos. 
and I point this out to my students. I said, well, you know, if you've ever been camping at night away from the city, you know what that's what this is like. It's not just dark, it's really pitch dark. And you can hear things that all around you don't know what they are. And there's a tangle in the undergrowth that you can't get through sometimes. And the woods grow as they want. They don't grow according to any plan. Right. Um, so, and there are and, things in it. There are things in the woods. Right. And, and the exact inverse of the world that we want to surround ourselves with, that we are surrounded with, now in modern life where we can see everything yeah. without the we can see everything else with at least the illusion the feeling of the experience of not being seen ourselves but in the dark woods you're surrounded by things that can see you you are seen yeah but you cannot see anything yeah yeah yeah, that's that's intriguing. I was thinking about the uh, necromancer in the south there of Merkwood, how he infects the wood and all the land around him, which is a very dragonish thing to do. Mm -hmm. But unlike yeah, the dragon, exactly. he devastates. He just confuses and um, benights, darkens everything around him. Mm -hmm. The dragon, on the other hand, burns, chars, clears away everything, so he can see for miles, because the dragon control over everything that right that the dragon chooses a high place he's in the mountain at the top of the lake he comes yes. from above he comes from above and he burns down everything below it that's modern man in many ways yeah uh, absolutely <laughs> absolutely and we do see that later on when Sodom retreats to his fortress there in Mordor and he's yeah. at the top of um, his tower there and yes. Baradur the great Baradur, eye, right. watching everything Panopticon oh, these empty plains of Gorgorath, yeah. which these flat burning plains, there's no no ravines hardly or anything or undergrowth at all. And so there's a very dragonish quality there. And I think you're right. The modern concept is not to work with nature or to understand nature or even to respect nature, but to char nature, pave the earth, right? Make yeah. everything flat so you can see for miles and just control everything and put... Uh, um, what is it, not DDT, but uh, Agent Orange, put Agent Orange on all the plants, so you just destroy them. Yeah. yeah. Monsanto, thank you, no. Um, mm -hmm. I think that in this case, we've got the, 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 the desire of Bilbo to see everything. Has, he's had a hood put over him. He's got darkness put over him, so he can't do that at all. Right. And he's forced to rely on other things other senses so to speak or other abilities mm -hmm. but like but like the going back to the red riding hood thing like the red riding hood that's right yeah that story is one where she goes and she talks to a demonic figure right uh every every fairy story or every story is geared towards an age group and we tell some stories to younger kids uh that then they grow into and we tell mm -hmm. stories to older kids that we would never tell to younger kids. Mm -hmm. So those stories that are geared to different ages are like they're, they're beginning to bring young people into the understanding of the world, or proper understanding of the world, which is why it's important not to tell bad fairy stories to kids, right? Uh, exactly. Stories like Frozen, like, which kind of corrupts them. Which one? Surprising with Disney. But the, the story yeah. of Red Riding Hood, she goes... She goes into the dark forest, which is the tangled thing that you can't control where there are dark things there. It's a hostile area. 
and she speaks to the demonic figure of the of the wolf and it's that demonic figure of the wolf that then precedes her gets gets around in front of her finds another path whatever it is gets to grandma's first devours grandmother and then seduces red riding hood and devours her and in the original Grimm's story that's where it ends it's like you know the wolf eats everybody and so good night johnny and go to sleep right the german literature everybody dies everybody dies <laughs> <laughs> good night kids yeah very realistic a very dark kind of thing but it is a fascinating story in that first off she goes into that dark wood and talks to the demon that then destroys her and her, and her grandmother but there are also no male figures in the story except for the the wolf mm -hmm. there are three female figures there's no woodcutter which is a later addition the man swooping in to save the day you know the helpless female but it's uh it's a middle-aged woman a young girl and an old woman so it's really it's past present and future right and at the end of the story the, the the past is devoured that is the uh the young girl or maybe she's the future the past the grandmother is devoured the right. future just the young girl is devoured we're left only with the woman the grown woman still yeah. which really does indicate something about that story being a story again of growth and maturity that coming to grips with the sinister nature of, of the worlds of aspects of the world coming to grips with possibility that you know there are things out there that are uh, very dark that you can't um control um even the, the 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 red of her hood kind of indicates that innocent thing that hasn't yet been violated right bilbo is kind of like that he's kind of like red riding and going into the woods with this naive thought yeah. that I've, I've got this we're all good i got a ring everything's okay and it does keep him going but he also has to come to grips with the idea that there are spiders there dark creatures there and the unpredictable happens it's not in your control despite your better efforts there's 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 screw-ups along the way that you could have avoided like pacing your your rations a little better you know put yourself on meager rations so your oxen could you could make it a little bit further on the oregon trail i mean like <laughs> you know some basic principles here it'd be all right and yeah. don't drink the water okay so they're not going to drink the water don't even touch the water they're very cautious about it but despite their best caution, nonetheless, they cross. They successfully cross. They solve that math problem, you know, who's got to go across the boat, you know, river so many times, whatever can get over there. And just as bombers coming off, they, they get distracted. They get overcome by the passion of gluttony, desperation. Mm -hmm. They're afraid. They want to grasp at something. And so they shoot at this deer that's jumping over. They hit the deer. Yeah. I mean, the deer's already on the wrong side of the river. Yeah. And they hear it fall. But in the confusion, because of that distraction, because they lose focus on the thing to be done in the moment, they get distracted by this flying passion. Um, a passion, a sickness, right? Uh, you know, something wrong. Mm -hmm. Because of that, Bomber, the fat man, the, you know, the epitome of the, 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 hungry part right he loves food um stumbles and falls backwards into the water mm. and doing so kicks the boat away as anybody who stumbled at a riverbank disembarking from a boat knows how this goes with 
anybody who's been in that experience knows what a real pain in the neck it is to go try and retrieve a boat that's now been kicked out into the water. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden, there he is, and he falls instantly asleep. That is to say, into a stupor. Mm -hmm. They do manage to wake him. He's lost his memory. Everything of the past is erased. And he's asleep. And they've created now another dead weight for themselves. Mm. Totally mm. unforeseen, totally unpredictable. In some ways, unavoidable. Something, a chaotic moment happened. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I suppose you could say they're culpable for this, you know, being distracted, shooting at the deer, getting all, you know, instead of just letting it go and focusing on getting everybody off the boat. But it's understandable. But this, this, this unforeseen chaos has befallen them. And now one of their number has fallen into mm. complete darkness internally as well. He's lost his memories, fall into the River Lethe. Yes, River Lethe. Connection. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on in just that one section. That that section right mm -hmm. there where they they come up to the river and they, they can't get across and they see the boat or Bilbo sees the boat and then they try to cross and then the deer comes and then Bomber falls and falls asleep. That whole section has is very vivid in my imagination, even yeah. as a kid. But it's always struck me as that's the most nightmarish point of the whole journey, really, for me. It is, yeah. So, so filled with mythological images. You, like you said, the river, which is like Lefe. Mm -hmm. Here, which is something directly out of Celtic mythology. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the boat, the image of the boat, you know, like Charon's boat or the, the boat yeah. of the, the, the boat of... Um, of uh, Tristan and Isolde, it's like this one thing after another that Tolkien packs into this one section. Even the fact, yeah. even the fact that the the dwarves try to kill the deer—that's, if I'm not mistaken, there was a Celtic legend of Aron, and Aron uh, was the god of the hunt. And if you killed his deer or killed his dogs, he would come after you. He'd hunt you. So there's that. But there's also the image of Artemis, that if you kill Artemis's deer, they were sacred to her and uh, yeah, and down. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, any, any, the, the killing of a deer, if you're, especially if you're not the king, I mean, killing the king's deer, that's yeah. it. You killed, you stole the deer from the park of the king, now you've got to be hanged. That's, yeah. that's how the song goes. It's the movie, yeah. these tragedies all around this idea. And and they can hear the hunt going on. People are, you know, the the, the king, the elf king. This so this is a deer that belongs to the, to the elf king. Essentially, they're on the hunt, mm -hmm. and and you've gone and slain the deer. Like, Dad, don't do that. Bad. No, no. Hmm. And they have and they have um, gotten to the point now because they've eaten the rations too early. They've gotten to the point where they're beginning to really feel the pang of hunger, and it's yeah. driving them a little nuts. Mm. So. To, to start at the beginning of that section, I, I find it interesting that they first they come to a river that crosses yeah. the path. Because wouldn't there be a bridge or wouldn't there be a ford or something at that point? You'd think, mm. but it isn't. It's, it's no bridge. Check, as they say in the text, first real check of their path. Mm -hmm. And and that's striking to me, not only because it seems out of place. But also because it's an, the image of the river crossing is another thing out of mythology that appears frequently. You cross a river, you're into a new boundary, you're into a new world. Uh, Beowulf, for instance, who crosses over the sea in order to get to the um, Herald. Mm -hmm. So they're crossing a boundary here, but they can't right. cross because it's too deep. 
and they look into the darkness, the murk, and only Bilbo can see a boat. And they try to get yeah. that boat, which itself is strange. Who tied that boat up? Why is that boat there? Right. And it's on the further side. It's on the further side. You know, what, what is going on? I, all these questions came up when, even when I first was having this read to me as a kid. I'm like, how did that get there? Which, by the way, as a side note, one of the wonders that I find of reading mythology is that it raises those questions. Well, how does that happen? How did that how did that work? You know, how did, how did they get that thing inside that egg? Or why does the, why does the princess have this in order to get the princess? Or, you know, why does this creature come when you do X, Y, or Z? Mm -hmm. Those questions in mythology are never answered and they don't need to be answered if you're going to be um, uh, really doing mythology. Cause you just have you to know what you're about. You have yeah. to and so this whole section here is harkening back to that because it raises these questions. But once they get that boat even, it's not so easy getting across because they can only go across in pairs, like entering into Bayorn's house two by two. Mm -hmm. And they get to the other side, and that's when that white deer shows up. And again, the question, where does it come from? Why is it there? What does it mean that it's white? Why is it trying to get across the river to the other side? Now, what is up with that? As you, you, you seem to have suggested that it was an image of chaos or an image, its appearance, brought up an image of chaos. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that is part of the imagery of the white deer in general or just this instance? I think it's in part this instance in mm -hmm. that I will say this. There, right, it's, a, it's the white stag. It's not the, um, the questing beast or something. Right. Like that, there's, there's, there's this internal chaos where it sounds like that, you know, a hundred, the baying of a hundred hounds from within its belly or something. No, this is, this is the white stag. This is a noble creature. It itself does not represent chaos, but it's the divine comes crashing in on them and their response to it is chaotic. They are not prepared to encounter the divine. They're not prepared to encounter the luminous and what they do with the white stag in, in at least some legends, you've got a stag that appears. This is especially true in later Christian legends of somebody like Saint Hubert, um, Saint uh, Eustache, um, Eustachio, you know, the mm -hmm. Jägermeister deer symbol, right? Oh, the right. cross in his antlers, right? Yeah. But you encounter the stag, and there's there's this the this theme that the stag there's a there's a moment of pause. The stag stops and looks. There's peace that's made between the hunter and the stag. The stag, in some versions, offers himself to the hunter. There's something of this generosity that I believe is meant to be given in this symbolism. Because the divine is something that is to be received, to be quested after, to be sure. Hence the theme of hunting the white stag. But it's a quest, and it's not something to be grasped, to be shot, to be taken. Yep, yep. But so to be received when it offers itself. And here, in some way, it's offered itself to them, at least with the encounter. And they've, 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 they've scrambled, they've shot at it, and they've totally missed the, the mark, yeah. And they do it in a wild, uncontrolled way. Exactly. Yeah. But they're, they're, it's almost like a, like a gang of teenage savages or something encountering something beautiful for the first time, like Clockwork Orange or something like that. <laughs> you know, bananas on this, this poor thing. And so, naturally, it would it would jump away. I love the image too, that this, this represents the divine in the midst of the uh, dark, oppressive, murky nature of the wood. 
you get yeah. something which is completely anachronous. It's uh, it's the the white beauty of light that comes out of nowhere, comes out of the darkness, and it could it it could be something which offers some guidance through the rest of the, the remainder of the forest as a as a guide. It could be a shapeshifter. I mean, we've encountered that before with Bayon. Right. Um, it could be right. something which uh, is directly connected to uh, to the, the gods uh, that um, that rule over Middle Earth. You know, the gods of light that rule over Middle Earth. Um, but the dwarves don't take that into account at all. They immediately start shooting at it. There's not even a moment where they, like you said, the, between the Jägermeister and the, and the deer, there's a moment where they recognize each other and like in the movie Deer Hunter or something, they, they, they don't kill the thing because they, they see it as majestic. And, uh, but the dwarves don't do that. They, they immediately start firing arrows away at this creature. It reminds me too, not just of the American Indian, uh, the Native American tendency to thank the deer for its gift when they, when they kill right. it. They see the, the animal coming to them as a gift to prevent starvation. But it also reminds me of that great poem of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner Mm -hmm. where in that poem the 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 sailors are stuck in the horse doldrums there in the atlantic ocean and they can't get out and that it's the sun's burning down on them and they're all dying basically of, of the heat and the lack of water and the lack of food that's where the line water water everywhere and not a drop to drop to drink yeah. so they're all suffering they're all dying one after the other and the reason that 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 happens is because they were earlier trapped in the ice of the south uh, atlantic and in the midst of the ice when they didn't think they could get out here comes this albatross and the beautiful white bird that that guides them out and when the albatross comes the ice breaks up and the ship can get free and they're all like yay thanks be to god he's gotten us out of this this state of spiritual stasis and then the main character says i don't know why i did this but i shot it i shot the bird i shot the albatross you know right. and that's what causes them then to get stuck in the malaise of the horse doldrums, right. which is a very similar thing to this. Not that Bilbo is the main character, but the dwarves act like the main character in the Albatross story. And you've got the same image of whiteness coming out of the murk, uh, the Albatross. Flying overhead. You know, yes. And it's like, it's like a divine gift that then is taken for granted. I can't help but think that this is, to some degree, um, the image of seeing the world as beautiful and precious and divinely inspired, divinely created. Mm -hmm. And you can either take it for granted and shoot at it, you know, dominate it, or you right. can uh, see it as gift and, and seek help and advice from it. Um, yeah. you your hand to it, so to speak. I don't know why. I just thought of that scene too, from All Quiet on the Western Front at the very end where he reaches out for the butterfly. Mm -hmm. You know, remember that scene uh, in the movie? I don't know if you've seen that black and white. Great scene at the very end, based on a, a novel. And mm -hmm. it's you know, World War One, so it's all this horrible stuff. And at the very end, he reaches out for this butterfly. And it's, it's German, so it's a very cynical story. When he reaches out for the butterfly, that's the moment that the main character gets killed. But he has a moment this dark gray. And he's lost all his illusions about how noble it is to die for Germany and all this. He suddenly sees this one spatch of color in a blue butterfly and he reaches out to it because it's so beautiful and of course he gets mm -hmm. killed at the moment but <laughs> i guess my my thought was that yeah. it's a similar reaction to the divine presence suddenly in the midst of of um, desolation 
that in the midst of desolation, you see something beautiful. And that, that beautiful thing that's sent to you by the divine can either be taken for granted or, or dominated or destroyed. Yeah. Or it can be something you honor and respect and, and follow as a guide out from the murk of, of um, the inferno, one or the other. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you and let me let me touch on something else because that also sparks another idea. You touched on the idea that Bambur is the one that falls, and yes, he's the he's the largest, he's the fattest of the whole crew. So he does represent the, that gluttonous aspect of a person, and and then he falls into that deep sleep, almost like the the magical sleep of um, of Adam or the magical sleep of Lancelot or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, dead weight to everybody else around him. So there's a sort of comic aspect to it, but it's also not comic in that this is a problem. You know, not only are we starving and we're lost and it's dark and there are things out there, but now we've got to carry this, you know, two-ton guy around with yeah. us. Where... How, so then the question would be, how does the appearance of the divine thing and the reaction that we have to kill that divine thing, how does that result in not only the, um, oh gosh, not only the the gluttonous aspect falling asleep, but then the gluttonous aspect becoming a burden. I just again spark in the head. I mean, movie. It, say again. Movie yeah, spark in the head. It sparked another image from a movie, which I'll bring up in a minute. But go ahead. I was like, the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, I, I like that you 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 drew the rhyme, the rhyme of the ancient mariner because, of course, what is what is the main character's fate? What does he have to do now that he shot the albatross? Where's it around his neck? He has to wear it around his neck, the yeah. albatross around your neck, which has become a byword and now forgotten, you know, since then. But for a while, it was a thing that people said. It was a symbol that meant something. And now they have to bear the burden of Bomber, right? Yeah. In some ways, they have to carry this around, this curse, as the natural consequence of what they've, of, of what befell, of how they responded to the, to the inbreaking of the divine. Wow. That's really cool. There's that scene... And it, sorry, it just it just dawns on me because so that when he so that he finally does wake up, so they've been carrying him around, dragging him around, and he does wake up. You know, slap him right. Eventually, it's like days later, he comes to and he's been. I've been having this beautiful dream of all this banquet, and all he can talk about is how his wonderful dream of this divine like banquet. And then they see the ignis fatuis, right? They see these mirages off in the distance, off the path. Yeah, these glimmering lights. Yeah. The um. Oh great! What's what's this? Those wonderful spiders, the will of the wisp, kind of thing. They see these will of the wisps, you know, going around, and they that draw them off the path because what they hear is these the elves banqueting. They see yes. the fire and the joy and all this, and Bobber's like, "Oh, that's just like my dream. We gotta go after it." And they all and say, "He wakes up." They say, "Shut up!" But he wakes, up. but then he comes. It becomes this thing, this obsession for them all, and so he it spreads again. So he became a curse for them. They had to bear. And then he also then it becomes a temptation, the very thing that drives him off the path to follow after these I, uh, I love these, these mirages. Tolkien works because you know, we, you could read this as just kind of comical or just another sort of incident along the way. But why does he use the, the image of eating, of hunger? That's a really powerful image. You know, we talk about hunger as a physical hunger, but then there's a greater hunger of the spiritual or the emotional hunger. That we long for, you know, we long for, we long for the divine, things of beauty in this world. And it's a, it's a hunger which is inextricable from a conscious being. Not right. just me. Other conscious beings in the universe, they probably suffer the same thing to some degree. 
to be conscious is to hunger because you always hunger yeah. for something else uh, yeah. beyond. Um, and so in this instance, we're, we're talking physical hunger, but it's a, it represents that hunger for the beautiful and the divine. It's not goblins partying in the woods, you know, it's, yeah. it's elves, which is a beautiful, divine, elegant thing that now these dwarves are all of them infected with that hunger, which before they thought was bad, but now it's really bad, especially after Bomber awakes. But even yeah. Bomber's dream is a is essentially it's a dream of heaven isn't it because right. when it comes down to it we all think of heaven as being pancakes in the morning with mom and dad you know right. <laughs> basically what it is you yeah. could talk high philosophy about how it's going to be an eternal conversation or we're going to be sitting around talking philosophy yeah sure but if it's philosophy without beer and pancakes then what the hell's the point you know <laughs> <laughs> um in that other world where we don't suffer diabetes <laughs> and we don't suffer penury when we can't afford beer, uh, mm -hmm. it will be a world where we are invited to the banquet and we can sit and talk and, and enjoy each other's company. And that's what Bomber dreams about, you know? And, and he does so after the fact of everybody, everybody but Bomber shooting at the, um, at the, at the deer. Huh, wow. I was I was thinking, Cameron, too. Wonder, you, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and I wonder if, so because what befalls them, then when they do leave the path to approach the uh, the fires of the elven banquets, is that there's an explosion of chaos. Dark, the fire's kicked out. And this, these are, um, you know, the it's, it's almost like magic poof ash, you know, thrown everywhere. And they can't see and they're all confused and they're lost in the dark. If that's not the direct contrapasso to their response of the deer breaking in on them, had perhaps had they responded differently to the deer, they would have been able to enter into the banquet of the elves, which is not unlike, again, these ban the banquet that's this luminous banquet in the dark forest there. It's very grail. This is the grail meal. The grail is passing by. And here we are with, with Percival again. And he was just crossed the river, just like Percival. And, and here we are. And, and, instead of responding rightly to the deer, right, they, they responded with chaos and they shot it and they can't even get it because it's on the other side. Now, when they approach the, if we will, the grail banquet, it's taken from them and they're blinded. They can't enter into it. I, I can't, I mean, I, I sometimes have to check myself and say, is this, is it simply because I've been reading a certain text that I'm thinking this way, but then again, I'm always reading Arthur. So uh, when is it not, affecting how I think. Um, <laughs> I think that the Grail thing is an absolutely perfect analogy. Not only did, did, did Tolkien know the Grail and, and want oh, to write the Arthurian cycle, but it was something deeply embedded in the whole imaginative world of the British anyway. No, absolutely. The image that comes to mind to me is the Lancelot scene, yeah. where Lancelot tries to put out his hand to the Grail and is shut out immediately from the pageant uh, and exactly. locked out chapel he can't get into the chapel for lancelot that's due to as it says his sin with guinevere okay in other words he seems to have violated a trust with arthur and violated a sacred trust that's given to him of the vision of what beauty is but he has also done something else which is to violate a trust with a real woman elaine who really does love him versus an imaginary woman that, that comes out of the darkness and then skips over the river, so to speak, with him. Right. Uh, 
something that he shouldn't be shooting at. Um, right, he's, sh he's shooting deer in the King's Garden. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Not to use a euphemism there. But yeah. <laughs> but yes, uh, because because of that violation, because of that sin, yeah. he is shut out from the Grail Quest, and that makes his longing for the Grail Quest so much more piquant that the destruction of the um, the destruction of the Round Table and the the Civil War and even the loss of his own physical uh, prowess is all of it acceptable by the end of his life because he's longing for something far more than that. At the end of Lancelot's life, when he dies as a poor monk, he dies exactly. happy. He dies happy. Exactly. He finds the fulfillment of his chivalric vocation as yes. a knight by becoming yeah. a monk. Yeah, right. Because by that point, he's realized what really is important, what really is the, 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 the thing that ought to be valued. <laughs> Not to go too tangentially, but my wife was pointing out that in the movie The Natural, the Robert Redford movie, which is a retelling of Goodness. the personal story, that character okay. who has everything lost because he gets shot in the, in the early part of the movie, mm -hmm. he then gains it back, not by becoming a great baseball star, but by realizing that he has a son and a wife, basically, that he can cherish and he can pass mm -hmm. on to them. And so the last scene in that movie where he's in the field with the son playing catch with his, his own son is so powerful a scene because he, like, like Lancelot should have done, he has achieved the grail in his real form. Mm. And this, okay, now I got to bring it back to Hobbit. In this story, that's what Bilbo is doing himself. He is on a quest, right? And the quest mm -hmm. is to find the grail, not, not the physical cup, although he actually does find although it. Although that is, in fact, what yeah. he gets out from the dragon's <laughs> lair. <laughs> in case we missed it. In case you weren't paying attention. <laughs> um, <laughs> But the real yeah. is to find that grail of himself, to find the grail of what he really is and what he really values. And so that's this scene here allows him in some ways to see what beauty really looks like. And I gotta move to the next important section of this chapter, which is where he is told to climb a tree by the dwarves. Yeah. We're still asleep. They've already gone through the whole white deer thing. Bomber's still asleep. And they said, we don't know where we are. You know, what are we going to do? We don't know what we're doing. So somebody has to climb a tree. Uh, right, we Bil can get reception and look at his GPS where we <laughs> yeah, are on the map. Good reception for your GPS. Bilbo, climb a tree. <laughs> so poor Bilbo goes up this tree. And again, it's kind of, you know, it's comic and all this. And it does point to the fact that the dwarves are relying on him more. But also it is an indicator of this idea that Tolkien seems to be working out, which is the valuing of beauty after long deprivation, yeah. Bilbo is prompted by his his ids, whatever we want to call these dwarves, yeah. prompted by his ids to do something to try and alleviate the situation, to look out above the Minnesota clouds and see whether there's a world out there or not, you know, still. Right. And can I just read that passage? Because that's yeah. such a beautiful, beautiful passage to me. This is somewhere... I don't know, it's maybe one, one third through the, the text. Thorin says, Is there no end to this accursed forest? That's my Thorin voice. Somebody must climb a tree and see if he can get his head above the roof and have a look around. The only way is to choose the tallest tree that overhangs the path. Of course, somebody meant Bilbo. 
They chose him because to be of any use, the climber must get his head above the topmost leaves, and so he must be light enough for the highest and slenderest branches to bear him. Poor Mr. Baggins had never had much practice in climbing trees. So again, like, why do they choose him, right? Because <laughs> he doesn't really climb trees. That's not what hobbits do. Right. But they hoisted him up into the lowest branches of an enormous oak that grew right out into the path, and up he had to go as best he could. He pushed his way through the tangled twigs with many a slap in the eye, he was greened and grimed from the old bark of the greater boughs. More than once he slipped and caught himself just in time. And at last, after a dreadful struggle in a difficult place where there seemed to be no convenient branches at all, he got near the top. All the time he was wondering whether there were spiders in the tree and how he was going to get down again, except by falling, which you do when you climb a tree. You know, you get up there, you're like, hey, and you get up to the top. You're like, okay, now how do I get down? Because <laughs> it's perilous. Right. <laughs> okay. In the end, he poked his head above the roof of leaves, and then he found spiders all right, but they were only small ones of ordinary size, and they were after the butterflies. Bilbo's eyes were nearly blinded by the light. He could hear the dwarves shouting up at him from far below, but he could not answer, only hold on and blink. The sun was shining brilliantly, and it was a long while before he could bear it. When he could, he saw all around him a sea of dark green, ruffled here and there by the breeze. And there were everywhere hundreds of butterflies. It's a great image right there. I expect they were a kind of purple emperor, a butterfly that loves the tops of oak woods. But these were not purple at all. They were very dark, dark velvety black without any markings to be seen. He looked at the black emperors for a long time and enjoyed the feel of the breeze in his hair and on his face. But at length, the cries of the dwarves were now simply stamping with impatience down below, reminding him of his real business. It was no good. Gaze as much as he might, he could see no end of the trees and the leaves in any direction. His harp that had been lightened by the sight of the sun and the feel of the wind sank back into his toes. There was no food to go back to down below. So that passage to me is... I mean, there are wonderful passages throughout this chapter, but that's one of one of three great passages in this chapter. The first being the yeah. one with the white, the white uh, uh, stag. Here he comes up to the top of the trees, and what does he see? He sees some small spiders. But they're kind of kind of interesting. They're not terrifying. They're interesting. And then he sees these butterflies. Butterflies are traditionally the image of the divine. It's like bees and butterflies are the two creatures that speak mostly to of the divine presence in the ancient world the butterfly is also the image of transformation change and alteration so that when you um when you're going through that transformation from a larval stage you enter into the chrysalis and then you emerge as the butterfly which is the divine creature with the with the uh, giotto type wings you know um and there therefore he is seeing these beautiful creatures which are emblematic of his own transformation to a certain degree. Yeah. And they're black, but they're, they're beautiful, like <clears throat> black creatures, not murky black down below, yeah. but beautiful creatures. And even around them is the sea of green, which you don't see down there on the, the floor. The, the floor of the, of the forest, it's all dark and dark wood and everything's blackened, but you don't see the green, you don't see the life. And up here, he's got light, life and there's this world out there breeze and openness he is the only character of the society that is able to see above the murk of the world 
And yeah. there's that most transcendent quality that occurs. I mean, literally, it's a transcendent. It transcends the, the, the normal. Literally gone above. And he sees it just for a moment. The idea that there's still freedom out there and light and happiness and joy beyond all that smoke that we have to endure. It's a great image, I think. Wonderful image. Yeah. And I think an interesting thing about this part is that, it, you know, it ends with him, you know, having to go down after seeing, nope, like it's beautiful, but there's no end in sight to the mark once I get back down there. And we're told by the narrator, however, that they were nonetheless close, closer yeah. to the end than they think. But he cannot see it, not because of the murk now, because he's up in the realm of the divine, of luminosity, of clarity, of beauty. And he's there, but not for the murk, but for his natural limitation of his mortal self is unable to see the end of the path because they're in a, the, the narrator tells us he's unable to see because they're in a sort of bowl, a sort of divot. Yeah, what do you so, mean? He can't see over the ridge because none of us, even at our most uh, clear, at our most lucent moments, can't see beyond the natural boundaries of the present where we are. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and we're faced with two options at that point. Despair. Oh my gosh, it is unending. There's no end. It's all, this, it's all more the same one damn thing after another. Or trust and hope to the path that's been laid out for us because had they continued on they'd arrive at the destination sooner or later in fact sooner rather than later but instead yeah. they despair and that despair that uh, the rather than respect the limitations of sight in their natural position uh, that are natural to their position or to our position of being natural and not in fact supernatural ourselves um rather than respecting that those limits and continuing on nonetheless in hope not optimism but hope they they re, they resort to that graspingness that mm. that urge to we have to take this into our own hands right to be yes. be listless and begin to leave the path because that's there's there's no other way out you panic like a like an animal in a trap and, and that should be game over, right? Here, here's something really, really important, which you just touched on. My father used to write about how the Lord of the Rings, as, as he saw it, was all about despair, okay? Mm -hmm. Every character in the Lord of the Rings wrestles to some degree with despair. <laughs> and my father noticed that despair is not being able to see that what you're enduring has a terminus. And therefore, you must take charge of it yourself. You have to grapple with it yourself, grasp it, and no longer trust that things will turn out okay, or that the, the, the not in a Pollyannish sort of way, but that the Lord has a plan, that something's going to happen that is positive here. This image of the Dell yeah. is something which, again, is one of those ancient, ancient images. I mean, I'm reminded of, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they come from me. It's not, yes, though I walk through the dark place. It's the valley of the shadow of death. Same image here, shadow, right? The, the necromancer, valley, Adele, uh, death. They all think they're going to die. It's the exact same image. And if you want to go back even further, the Egyptians used to conceive of their world, the whole world, as a Adele, a valley. It was, mm. it was 
bounded by mountains on either side. So it was essentially a valley you couldn't see over the edge to the other side. It, the, the shape of the bull horns that was also in Minoan culture was mm. not bull horns. It was the image of the valley of existence, that we are in a valley situation. Um, this same image, the same image shows up even in Plato, where he talks about how we are frogs sitting around a pond in a deep valley, right? Yeah. Can't see over the edge, and it's dark, and it's it's a murky. And if we don't have a sense that there is a providential nature to things, and again, not Pollyanna, this is not like, oh, it's all going to work out for the best, um, but rather a sense that somehow even the worst suffering we're going through, even starving in the middle of the forest, is itself part of the deal. It's part of the plan. It's part of the, the, the thing that's necessary to affect the change. Right. And during the Minnesota winter is part of enjoying the Minnesota summer, you know? <laughs> and if you don't have that sense, then it's, you're right. It's just one damn thing after another. And that's why when he gets back down again, I love this little passage that the, the dwarves are really ticked. They don't know what to do. They, they don't see any end out of it. And they said they didn't care tuppence about the butterflies. They're only made more angry when he told them of the beautiful breeze, which they were too heavy to climb up and feel because they're weighed down by this. Because they're earth spirits. They earth can't crawl spirit. up there. They can't get up high enough to be able to see anything like this. And they don't give a damn about butterflies. What are you telling us butterflies in the midst of this? You know, that's like, like creating poetry in the middle of Auschwitz. Who would do that? You know? <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, it's an amazing passage, I think, and it's a passage too, which is trans again transformative. Merkwood, <laughs> Merkwood is like a, uh, a generator for transforming Bilbo. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, he has been certainly on this quest for his the, the Grail of himself, and he has been transformed already by other things. But I think this is where you see the real transformation of this character, because he goes in all by himself, wizard left behind, and he's transformed first by that stag thing and then it's it's reaches a sort of apex where he goes literally up that tree transcends and comes down again and then it's transformed in character when in the next instance he meets the the spiders after those right. feasting scenes right. that's where he begins to take charge of his own life and he begins to be the man the bayorn that he should be rather than the, the little timid hobbit the rabbit character. in fact he casts off uh skin i mean it's in a small way but the spiders begun to wind him up, to bind him, to clothe him in something, and he yeah. casts off the webbing. This is the beautiful image of the, oh gosh, I wish I could like, share right now. There's in, in the Capella di San, I think San Severio, in Napoli, in Naples, there's the, uh, there's a number of very beautiful marble sculptures. One in particular is called the Disinganno. It's the, Disenchantment has a different connotation in English, but mm -hmm. in, to be inganno is to be deceived, to be in a web of lies, mm -hmm. to be in darkness. And this is a beautifully, it's one of those very delicate marble, you know, that somehow you're able to carve, you know, to sculpt like this filigree threads, you know, but it's a man being, you know, emerging, an angel uncovering a man from within like a fisher, fisherman's net, a fishing net. So he's got the net that's being peeled from his eyes and his face is peering out like this and he's entering, he's being freed from this net, from this web. Wow. And it's called wow. the disinganno. So he's the undeception. Yeah. Uh, and he's coming out like that. And so he's casting off these webs and, and in not 
not as profound a way, but in, I think, a subtle way, we see Bilbo do that when he comes to, he slays the spider and he peels himself free from the webs. He's now changing his skin in a manner of speaking. Yes, he is, isn't he? I mean, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's at all a, a bad analogy. I think it's a great analogy. In fact, send me the, if you can, send me the link to an image if you are able. Mm -hmm. I'll post it right here in the video. Il Disingiano, or the Belize from Deception, was produced in 1752. The sculptor is Francesco Pairolo. He was an Italian Genoese-born sculptor in Rome and Naples during the Rococo period. This from an article by Kelly Richman Abdu in MyModernMet.com. The Il Disingiano shows a fisherman being released from a net by an angel. It can be seen in Capella San Severo in Naples. Though at first glance, the structure appears to be composed of intertwined rope, a closer look reveals that the open mesh material is made entirely from a single block of marble. The statue depicts a scene that is both biblical and allegorical. For example, the flame on the angel's head represents human intellect, while the globe signifies worldly passions. The angel stands on a globe as he untangles the man from a net and floats above exquisite drapery. According to the Museo Capella San Severo, the net symbolizes sin as the angel sets the man free, he rids him of his wrongdoings and introduces him to the Bible, which rests at his feet. In order to emphasize the idea of liberation, Quarolo adorned the open pages of the book with a Latin passage that reads in English, I will break thy chain, the chain of the darkness and long night of which thou art a slave, so that thou might not be condemned with this world. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, yeah, that disentangled is another one of these great images. It, it's yeah. connected to Merck. It's connected to the, the image that we get of uh, escaping the fowler's net, as it says in the, in the Bible. Um, being freed of that, not in a Jungian sense. You know, the, Jung, the Jungians... God bless them. They do a lot of good stuff. But they used to suggest that anything that weighs you down, get rid of it, right? Any emotional attachments, any responsibilities, you know, get rid of it because your mind has to be free. You just got problems. But I bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> That's not the point. That's get rid of anything that weighs you down. The point is to recognize what things are you doing or engaging in that are themselves sin, disastrous, destructive. That's the point. Um, and it, that's very close to my heart. That actually happened with my parents, um, that they were, they almost split up because my mom, who was in a union community at the time before we were Catholic, was told, I think you need to divorce your husband because, you know, the, your family's weighing you down. You need to be free. And that's when she went, she just, she took the, my, my sisters and she 
went down to where they had had their honeymoon because she was so confused at the time. She was in a net. She didn't know what she was doing. Mm. And while she was down there, and I remember this as a kid being terrified, even as a young guy, that my mom was gone, right? So then she called my dad after a day and she said, come down and join me down here. And we all went down and that was the first of several visits down there as a family. We went after that yearly as a pilgrimage down there to Natural Bridge, Kentucky, because she recognized that they were wrong. They were wrong. It wasn't getting rid of her husband that was gonna make her free. It was getting rid of those damn unions. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they had cast, I think, whether they intended or not, they had cast a spell over her. You know, we talk about spells now, sort of uh, expelliarmus, zap, you know. That's not what a spell is. As, as you pointed out before, spell is a story that we tell. And, and, and the story can sometimes be something that infects the mind or frees the mind. And if we tell a story that infects the mind, we end up being necromancers, um, uh, warlocks. Death, um, death magicians. Death magicians. <laughs> If we tell a spell that liberates or frees, we are wizards. We are people that allow others to have autonomy and be free of those spider webs that entangle their own minds. Right. I, I think that, I think in our modern era, we have too many necromancers and not enough wizards. <laughs> if I can use yeah. that. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly it. And that's the beautiful thing is that story, again, to get into the etymology of things, that story, the ancient word for story, I mean, ancient English word for story is spell. Yeah. Spell means a story, a narrative, a tale. Um, and, and this is something that's overlooked, I think, in Christian theology, mm -hmm. is in the Gospel of John, the very end of his prologue, you know, in the beginning it was the word and the word is with God and the word was God, right? That's how it begins. But it ends with then, uh, you know, the word became flesh and so on. And no one has ever seen God, the only son who is in the bosom of the father. Mm. He has made him known. Some variation of that, he has revealed him, whatever, is the common English translation. Mm. This is not what it says. It, said, it, it says, and I forget the exact Greek word, but the Latin I recall, and that is ipse enaravit. He has in narrated him. In no one has ever seen God. The only son who is in the bosom of the father, he has in narrated him. Yeah. yeah. And so he has told the story. He has, I, I would, I bet you anything if, you know, find, you know, I don't know if Alfred had a translation of this or something, but they would, you know, somehow no one has ever seen God. The only son who is in the bosom of the father, he has spelled him. Huh. it's got to be some variation of that because this is what we're talking about we're talking about weaving a spell speaking something into being telling a story and weaving that and the stories we tell like you said are either freeing and liberating and life-giving spells the stories that we tell or they're black magic they're death yeah. magic and they can entrap and kill us yeah right right um and of course that passage of john goes on to that wonderful section that says the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Right. To use yeah. the James translation, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the meaning there being that the light in the midst of the darkness has shined, shone, shined, like the white shone. shone like <laughs> yeah. the white stag. And, the, and not only has the darkness not surrounded it, nice. because that stag has leapt over the river and gone away, but the darkness doesn't understand 
the light. Not only does it not comprehend it as in surrounding it, it doesn't comprehend it as like, I don't understand. What the heck? What are you? It's almost like the, 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 um, the darkness it operates in such a way that it can't conceive that there would be anything beyond darkness. Right. Strangely enough. Yeah. And that again, if only the dwarvish thing, that's perfect for the dwarves. The dwarves can't even imagine that there's something beyond all this darkness, day after day darkness. The character who can see above, Bilbo, sees above partly because he he makes that journey up, but also because I don't want to, to say that, that Tolkien is, is making a moral here, but I think he is making somewhat of a moral here. The person who has the vision of the divine is the person who can see above, right? That you, you have to have a vision that there is something greater, that there is a providential nature to this existence. Otherwise, it is one damn thing after another. And the track record of humanity is hideous. And we're basically just a meat sack on bones. And um, the journey through the murk is never ending. Just occasionally a piece that you're shut out from. And in fact, that's, that's interesting. I mean, he's not, I don't know. He, I, I want to say alone of the party. It's not technically true because Thorin, we find, wasn't in fact captured by the spiders either. That's because he's been in a dead sleep, enchanted sleep by the elves. Yes. Um, but he's he's royalty, so he's subject to different rules, maybe something, I don't know. But among the rest of the party, in any case, Bilbo, who's seen the light, who's transcended and seen above, is the one who's not entirely overcome by the spiders. He's mm. not hung up as a sack of meat on bones to dry. Yeah, how does that work? How does that work? How does it? How is it that the He's, rest... he doesn't totally despair? Yeah, right? he doesn't totally despair. He right. fights off the spiders. The spider when it comes to wrap him up, he comes to and he slays it with sting. That, that and then he goes to rescue the others. That raises the big question of why spiders. People have often said, "Well, Tolkien hated spiders, or Tolkien hated wolves." Yeah, he had no. a bad experience or something. He bad experience. <laughs> yeah, okay, whatever. I don't think that's an adequate answer. I think Tolkien is. Thing which is deeply embedded in our consciousness in the same way that serpents are deeply embedded in our consciousness and wolves mm -hmm. you know, we fear wolves as humans we fear them for a very good reason <laughs> there was a time we're, wolves we're natural um, prey uh, there's a time when serpents were a real threat to human beings they still are but you know um there was a time when i mean have you ever seen these like serpent matings when they go nuts in the spring you've ever seen pictures yeah. of those some scary crap right there. some of that live, yeah. <sighs> no, thanks. It's Medusa head. Medusa. Yeah, it is Medusa. Yeah, right, yeah. Or like in Texas where they have these uh, these rattler pits, you know, in the middle oh, of it. You, you, you overturn a little cave in the rocks and it's filled with thousands of these rattlers. Yeah, and either you and either you you get them out and make some good rattler chili or you back away really slow. <laughs> 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 My point being... Um, my point being is that, you know, um, there are these places in the world that are so dangerous to us. Yeah. And again, spiders were really dangerous to us. It's not just that, that he was scared of them as a boy. It's that they are deeply embedded in our consciousness as dangerous to us. They are, because even, not, I mean, just, I'll say two things. One is in the natural sense, and the other is we're going to dive into some, some, some deep spider, uh, you know, culture. Mm. you know is it's a second layer one is at our normal size and a spider's normal size 
ordinary spider size, ordinary human size, right? They're smaller than us, but they're dangerous. Venomous spiders are dangerous. You can't see them. You're nobody's bit by a spider, um, in a foreseen kind of way. It's always a surprise, you know. Um, you don't, you, you know, because you don't go looking for it. You're you're just there, and this small thing bites you. I mean, this is much like the the viper, you know, con the, the 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 viper image is it sneaks up on you, it snakes up on you, and it bites you secretly. And so the spider, spider, and they're a terrifying thing. And I'll recount a personal story. Yeah. Once I bought, so this is when we were living in in the countryside in Minnesota, in whatever this old old country house. Now, those of you not from the frozen north or who haven't picked up on the theme of cold and dark and wet, this is not not a place you find black widow spiders. Right, black widows don't exist up there. Yeah. Now, we happened to have recently, so we went down to the cities and we bought, we went grocery shopping. We bought some artichokes at Whole Foods in St. Paul. So you know who to blame if anything ever bad happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't St. Paul. We bought our artichokes, craving for artichokes. And so, like the dwarves, you know, we felt like we were starving. We bought, we bought artichokes, among other things. And it's a long drive. It was a two and a half hour drive back. We didn't go just for the artichokes. We had other business in the city. So we, when we came back, so the, we, we went grocery shopping. The groceries were sitting in the bags in the truck the whole day, the whole drive back up. The, the grocery bags were sitting under the feet of our children uh, for the two and a half hour drive home. And then we bring the groceries in and the grocery bags are saying, it's the end of a long day. You leave the bags out in the kitchen on the floor and you just get to bed. We're, we're all tired, we're exhausted. Well, the next morning, my wife comes down the stairs and what does she see? But immediately, but crawling across the floor, a black widow spider. Oh no, oh no. Shouts, throws, I don't know, what do we, what was that hand? Like a shoe or a phone or something. Bam, smashing. What the hell was that? You know, wait a second, we come down, we come down, we look, we look, we go, and then, you know, open up, the, you know, what the hell? These things don't live here naturally, right? This is a venomous spider that had been sitting in the truck beside our children this whole time, right? So, okay, where's this coming from? Um, you know, quick think, look through the bags, pull up, okay, there's the artichokes, and open the bag of artichokes, out crawls another one. And it's a black, sure enough, black widow spider. Didn't see wrong the first time. It wasn't a, it wasn't a wolf spider that we misinterpreted. It wasn't, you know, some whatever. And this thing, and it's crawling out. Actually, kill it right away. Crack open some of these things, and they're crawling with egg sacs. All oh. just packed with egg sacs of black widow spiders. And so you've got this nasty, disgusting, venomous, deadly venomous thing that had we not come, had, had my wife not come down the stairs at just the right moment and seen the thing, then you have this thing crawling around the house. I mean, we'd have been living in, you know, how do you, what do you do? You're living in terror at that point or something. You know, because had we discovered the sacks and not the mother spiders, you know, that you don't know, right? And, and then the realization as it sinks in, like these things have been sitting with you in the car the whole ride <laughs> up, you know, in the backseat. And, and to give a sense now of a sudden, why are, why spiders? Because they're this deadly, creepy, sneaky yeah. thing yeah. that can accompany you without your knowledge yeah. until the opportune moment and then pounce upon you yeah now i'm somewhat you know we're, we're dwelling between historical reality psychological perception and sort of you know the the myth and arachnophobia world here 
you know, how that all connects, but that's the subjective experience. But now why spiders? What does a spider do beyond just like what a serpent does or something? A spider injects venom into its victim. Mm -hmm. And before it's dead, it sucks the, in, the venom breaks down the internal yeah. parts of the, of the, of its prey and it, to turn it into a liquid so that ingests it like some sick slurpy through the straws of its own fangs it sucks dry the innards of the thing so it dissolves it from the inside liquefies it and eviscerates it it sucks it out the, the liquid literally sucks the life out of the thing so we've got something very sinister but also very symbolic in terms of yes. what the spiders are doing they bind you and they suck out the life from within you in this vampiric sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. And they also trap their foes and they leave spider filth everywhere, as he calls it elsewhere in the book. Yeah. The, the webs are not, I mean, we look at them as beautiful gossamer webs in the morning dew. Yeah, that's beautiful. But normally spiders are covering things in grayish filth. If you've ever been up to a, like an abandoned attic, this, oh. this is. It's just disgust. Like, and I'm not even talking about the human room, you know, stuff yeah. and clutter. But the webs, they're just, it's chaotic. It's dark. And they're, like you said, they're gray and they're sticky. And they're just nasty and they're everywhere. There's no, it's filth. It's filth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, your story beats my story by a long chalk. But my story was that I got bit by a recluse down there in, in Dallas. And Ooh. this whole, my whole arm here got purple, which yeah. I'm, it, that was all it was. It was a hard thing in the middle, and it was all purple, like from wrist to elbow was purple. Jeez. Because the recluse, it rots the flesh. Yeah. It's a net, uh, what is it called? A ne necro, whatever. Degenerate. Yeah, some sort of necrotizing venom. Yeah. And normally that means you have to literally cut the flesh out in order to save the rest of the Because it spreads. Arm. It spreads. Oh, gosh. So nice. Honestly, if Tolkien did have a traumatic child experience, if that was the reason, I don't discount that at all. Because it's a traumatic experience just to even talk about the bloody things. Um, I, spiders are great in that they keep the population of other animals, other creatures down, bugs and things like that. But they are not something that I can see myself saying, oh, what a lovely creature to keep around the house as a pet. That's not the case. <laughs> Highly symbolic, as you you bring up a really good point about the brown your, your brown recluse experience and the way they typically function is like you said it's this necrotizing mm -hmm. um, venom that spreads just like the necromancer's evil yes. spread right. throughout Mirkwood. in some ways he's a spider that bit in greenwood the great and turned it into Mirkwood. so it's only natural that the real encounter with the darkness and murkiness on the part of our you know hapless heroes is through spiders, which yep. do just that same thing. And of course, that that harkens back to the, the uh, ancestors of these spiders, which are Ongoliant yeah. uh, and uh, Shalob, who is a, a relative. Right. Shalob is the descendant from Ongoliant. And Tolkien's right. mythology is the great spider that grew out of the bad singing of Melkor at the very beginning of creation. So she's, she is a dark, feminine devouring force that is from the beginning of the created world very much like the um the image of the saltwater dragon tiamat out of babylonian mm -hmm. creature that wants to devour every single thing around yes. it um and and that's not a that psychologically that's not off 
base because uh, we frequently see the image of mothers more than fathers really wanting to envelop their children we call them helicopter moms now but they used to be spider-like mothers you know hitchcock was very aware of this he hasn't mm. his all over the place spider-like moms who want to devour their children and, and and take everything else around them and consume it you know mm. um, it's a void that will never be filled up no matter what happens around it ungoliant goes and she with uh with uh, uh melkor and she poisons the two trees of the Valinor at the very beginning right. of the Silmarillion. And that horrible deed causes this, this chaos to break out in the world. And eventually the light of the Noldor happens to some degree due to that horrible darkening that occurs. Right. So yeah, great history. I mean, great history, great image. And perfectly emblematic of what Bilbo has been experiencing in the rest of the forest, which is this enveloping darkness, this sense of dread, the sense of being trapped and you can't get out. And so now when he wakes up with the spiders, Idri says, oh, well, it's all over. I'm going to roll over and let them consume me and, and liquefy my guts and suck them out, as he pointed out. Or, or to hell with it. I'm going to fight back. Right. One of the you know, and like that great poem by Claude Mackay, right? If we must die, let us not die like hogs, but pin <laughs> all and fighting back, right? Yeah. Bill does that latter thing, and I think it's an amazing image where he finally, he's at, he decides, I'm not going to be spider food. This is not how Batman dies. And he pulls out his little sword, and he cuts himself free, and then he takes on the spiders themselves. And and they're little dragons, right? They're little dragons. Yeah. So he comes little dragons, and kills one and that's when he gets christened right i christen you sting, and sting if it could talk i christen you i dub thee right mm -hmm. i dub thee sir bilbo the brave right. yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's awesome that's you know that's what allows him to save the dwarves that's what allows him then to be able to um survive when they get uh taken away by the the elves etc uh, right. etc and what happens then at the end of the chapter? You know, how do we, we arrive to the end? He rescues the dwarves from the spiders. Eventually they slay them, they escape, they get far. And then captured by elves. Yeah. Captured by elves, right, in the very last. Um, the, the elves put thongs on him and shut him in one of the inmost caves with strong wooden door, doors and left him. They gave him food and drink, plenty of both, and not very fine, for wood elves were not goblins and were reasonably well behaved, even to their worst enemies when they captured them. The giant spiders were the only living things that they had no mercy upon. There in the king's dungeon, poor Thorin lay, and after he had got over his thankfulness for bread and meat and water, he began to wonder what had become of his unfortunate friends. It was not very long before he discovered, but that belongs to the next chapter and the beginning of another adventure in which the hobbit again showed his usefulness. So we, we, we end with a sort of Bilbo looking happily on. Um, That's right, because he's invisible. He's invisible, he's right? Ring on, so he doesn't get caught. He's not counted by the elves when they capture everybody and lead them away. And so he enters invisibly into the realm of the of the elf lord. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The elf kingdom mm -hmm. there. Yeah, and, and out of the forest, therefore, because they That's by right. by water they're going to escape from this nightmare of the of the right. um, forest. But yes, it ends with him being a different character than he was before, and now in a realm which is more more the realm of Fae 
which is dangerous, but not um, not hostile. Uh, right. And so, well, a good place and to start. <laughs> it is. It is. I want to point out, lest we be lost totally in the, in the darkness between now and then, which is the next when we pick up and we continue this this cycle. The we since we've talked so much about providence, it's worth revealing something from the next chapter, and that is despite the fact that they left the path out of despair, got captured and entangled in the spider's web and, and got free and all this, despite all of that, where they've broken the rules, they've entered into chaos, they've not responded rightly to the divine breaking in on them, and they've lost one of their member. They're yep. lost alone in the dark wood. Nonetheless, we are told later on, once they escape from the elf, you know, from, you know, from the dungeons of the elf king out through the waters, that... In the end, they arrived at their destination through the only way that would have possibly worked. Yes. So despite all the tangled web of their own mischoices, of their own misdeeds, of their own poor choices, providence, there's a higher providence at work nonetheless to get them precisely where they need to be, where had they been good little boys and girls and stayed on the path, still would not have, would have ended in a quagmires and swamps. That's a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's that is important to to address before we do finally close. Tolkien is uh, one of the most providential writers I think in the 20th century. Uh, he's he is he's in the same class as people like Flannery O'Connor and Evelyn Waugh, uh, and even Graham Greene before he went nuts. But he's far more joyful and hopeful than even they. I think he is one of the few writers of the 20th century that writes about happiness hope and joy and this is primarily why because he doesn't come right out and say everything's for the good everything's for the best it's sort of a panglossian yeah. rather what he does is he gives you these images like this uh, and then dialogue later on uh, in this book and the next that indicates that there's something else going on besides our immediate attempt to do everything perfectly gandalf right. says to Bilbo that if the, the ring was meant to come to Bilbo and therefore it was meant to come to you as well by some meaningful power, right? Um, okay. It's never our, our job to um, question whether these things should have come to this. It is only our job to do the best we can with the time that we're given. Exactly. That's providence, right? He doesn't use the word, but that's providence. And it's the same thing here. The fact that they could not have actually gotten out of the forest easily if they'd stayed on the path. The fact that the deviation due to starvation and negligence and all those other things was the only route that really would have gotten them out of the forest is a providential image. Yeah. Providence doesn't work by keeping us all safe all the time and making sure that we're always getting butter on our toast and all that. It's... It's rather, it works in that it, what is the line? It, may, it writes straight with crooked lines, right? Is right. that the quotation? Yeah. Even our own misdeeds can serve yes. to yes. achieve the goal. Yes. Right. I often get myself, I find myself getting put out by that bumper sticker that I see all the time that not all who wander are lost. You know, you see that frequently mm -hmm. because I think people that, that use that frequently using it, meaning, you know, I can do whatever the hell I want. I'm not really lost. That's right. not what he's getting at when he says it. 
what he's getting at is that we frequently think that the, the jig is up or the course is gone. You know, we've lost the right way. We frequently think that because we're still in that valley of shadow of death like Bilbo is. But the reality is that the providential power, whatever we want to call it, is still at work even when we don't see it at work, even when we don't see the right path. Right. Exactly. And eventually, and eventually our escape from that forest may be in a very mundane way in used wine barrels. In you used know? wine barrels, we, yeah. But Fulton Sheen used to use the image of old pots. We are all of us old, broken pots. And that's what God used. <laughs> I love that. That's a very, very good point. Good. Should we end on that point? Let's end on that point. On toast. That's right. <laughs> oh goodness, Cameron! As always, it's it's truly a pleasure. This is a very this is very therapeutic for me. Will. In the midst of my dark forest that I'm going through here in Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah, you for likewise. I see that during the midst of our conversation, the sun has begun to try to come out of the clouds, and I'm like, yeah, come on, baby, <laughs> we can do it. All right. Well, farewell wherever you fare. To and may your journey. That's right. <laughs> and may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. And tea. So long, sir. Ah, ah, ah.
Ay, ay, ay. Here I go on a rant again. My kids told me the other day, Dad, you gotta stop ranting. I don't rant, but apparently I do. I think when I hit the Rubicon at 50, I started to rant. I go to one of those old codgers that goes around with a cane and be like, rah, 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 you kids, get off my lawn. That's gonna be me. I, I dream big. I aspire to greatness. One of these days. You know that all the Egyptian kings had beards too? See the beard? This one's broken off, I think. It's the, you know, it's like $5.99 at Home Depot or whatever it was. <laughs> Whenever I got this, pure one. But they all had beards. The, the pharaohs all had beards. They didn't grow beards, but even the women pharaohs, even the, the queens, wore the beard. It was a ceremonial beard. Down. And uh, not quite sure what to make of that either, except for that everything in Egyptian culture seems to have been somehow related to mathematics. And the mathematics that we're talking about there is uh, some pretty complex stuff. And we want to uh, see if we can't get Dr. Cameron Thompson on here. Noticing this the other day, too many buttons. Mm -hmm. I think our modern world just depends on button pushing. There's a time when some people were button pushers and others were not button pushers. Now everybody's a button pusher, pushing buttons all day. Come on. Yeah, right. Allow your viewers to request to join you as a guest in your broadcast. And I have. I push the button. It doesn't do anything because, you know, technology. Again, that idea of all of us being button pushers used to be only some people pushed buttons all the time, daily. Hour after hour. And they were kind of like, what an awful job that would have been to have nothing but button pushing all day long. Other people worked with their hands. They were artisans and they were musicians and they were speakers and they were writers, drivers of trucks and haulers of material. They didn't push buttons all day. But now, with the invention of the iPhone, everybody can be a button pusher. <laughs> and it takes you bloody forever to figure out which button to push too, doesn't it? So you sit there for hours, staring, staring, staring into the Palantir, trying to figure out which button it is you're supposed to push so you can make the thing work to go with the thingamabob that does the job and bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Oh, I can 
put on a mystery mask. That's cool. I can't get Dr. Thompson into the chat, but I can certainly put on a mystery mask. Let's surprise my viewers with a different mask every five seconds and see how long it takes you to actually lose your ever-loving mind. So right now I'm wearing a mask. It's the mask of my face. <laughs> you didn't think it was a mask, but you wrong. I'm wearing a face that I keep in a jar by the door. Who is it for? Well, it's for all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? <laughs> you know, hey, you know, hey, words. Um, you know what a persona is, besides an Ingmar Bergman movie? A persona, right? Or when you say you're a person, mm -hmm. that's the, uh, the the essential you, I guess, the core of you, your personage. And a persona, that's something you adopt, you know, like Robin Williams adopting, adopting a different persona every five seconds. That's a persona. And where does that word come from? Well, I'll tell you. It comes from the Greek person. Parasona. Sonas means sound. It comes from the word sound. The Greeks on stage, they used to wear large masks because, you know, you're up in the nosebleeds, you can't see diddly squat. So they wear large masks so people up in the high uh, bleachers could see what was going on down on stage. And the mask would have an open slot where the mouth was. You know, it was a face, an old man face or a young girl face, whatever it was. And then it would have a slot where the mouth was. And between the mask and the, and the actor, there was a space. Well, about that much. And there'd be a tube that they would speak through and it would amplify the voice and so their sound would come through that tube. It was the persona, was that tube. And their voice coming out from that mask was the persona. So being in a persona situation, haha, I can add you at last. Being in a persona situation means it's not really you. It's actually something. Face to meet the faces that you meet. Next time you're talking about hey, adopting a persona, think from it where it comes from because maybe it's not from a very good spot after all. Maybe persona is not what you want to adopt. Real you. I don't know. Just coffee. Liquor in the Did I push the right buttons? Why can't I hear you? Emilio Rato. As I say in America, why can't I hear you? Can you hear me now? Yeah, well, there's not much there, is there? <laughs> <laughs>
Blurry. <laughs> blurry. I catch mystical creatures. Mystical creatures. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so, anyway, are you in a position now we can officially start the show? Yes. Yeah? Yes, for now. I will admit, before we do, I haven't done a lick of, of legwork on this. I mean, this week sure. is kind of something else for me, so. Yeah, you and me both, which is okay, because I think that fits the theme of the chapter. What, wandering yeah. dark? Wandering out of the dark wood, eat through all our supplies, because we're too damn tired of carrying the packs. Whatever you do, don't leave the path. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, let's wander over there and see if it's going to go good. Just don't fall into the water either. Seems to work. Right. Like a good mogwai, all of a sudden there you are, falling backwards into the river. There goes yeah. the When you read that passage, you know, a don't stray from the path and don't don't drink from the water. You ever read that passage and think, okay, wait, 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 too many instructions. <laughs> 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 you, know, you stay here, guard the prince, don't let anyone enter. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. wait. So don't let anyone into the window. Right, just... Or anyone else says so. <laughs> no. <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll really begin once you're, you know, set in stone. Am I yeah. sideways if I go like this? Yes, you're sideways, yeah. Uh, all the, uh, <laughs> so you have to hold it? The whole world got turned upside down. Yeah. You you know, you can get a really cool tripod from Amazon for like six bucks. Yeah, well, I was going to say, once upon a time in a former world I had, in a, in a, in a, in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> I had one of those. Deemed it not a vital solution. I think it had a solution here. One of those knocked us down from them. It was a yeah, it was a non-vital thing in the uh, in the Great Escape. Yeah. Yeah, I sympathize. I still find myself now. I'm like, who's that, what's that character? I've lost my marbles. I've lost my marbles. <laughs> Around looking for something. Like, where? Oh, I had that one. I was yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> It's got to be here somewhere. <laughs> Hard to accept that. You know, you, you, you haul out things from your childhood and, and you remember them very fondly. It's different from now when you were a kid. I, I think I hauled out the Star Wars figure collection the other day and all the plastic is now degenerated. Ouch. You know, it's degenerated. Yeah. So they're very brittle and the arms are all falling off because the rubber bands inside are broken. And all this, you know, like, oh, it's not what I remember. Oh, <laughs> they, I'm sure they pressed new plastic by now, so I can go out and buy the whole set again. There's no solution. Damn you, Zucks. <laughs> Aqua scum. Aqua scum. There is no escape. There's no sanctuary. <laughs> there is no sanctuary.
guess I'm in the heart of narcissism. I've got you on my camera. I'm, you know, I'm addressing you on my camera through this live chat, but then I'm looking at you and I on my computer. <laughs> True narcissistic behavior going on. Uh, oh, yeah. Are you? I'm not a narcissist. Not a narcissist. I tell myself that all the time. It's enough about me. Enough of you think about me. Think about me. <laughs> Yeah, there was just a study that came out, I guess. I, I just, you know, the headlines and the, 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 the plebeian reinterpretation of things is always not worth reading. But the, uh, the basic idea that they found that, in fact, shocking, shocking new discovery that um, virtual team meetings, you know, done through Zoom and all that, uh, don't, don't, aren't as effective as, as in person. People are less, uh, they accomplish less. Because they're not, uh, they're, because they're too focused on looking at their own mirror image on the on the screen and how they look on the screen and doing small grooming behaviors to actually communicate with one another. What? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what. Where they're getting that? I just. <laughs> yeah, like that's one of those. It was one of those boron moments. You're like, really? That's amazing. I never would have thought. Yep. And these are the people that are deciding your future. Kids. Yeah. That's a shocking thought right there. Don't you worry. They've got I, it all under control. Science. Hmm? I trust the science. Trust the science, man. I trust it. Trust the science, man. I do. Like I trust the hurdy-gurdy man. Same thing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, wait, wait. I think I'm losing my mind. Um Okay, so I'm going to poke your face. We're going to officially start the video here, so I have a starting point. Okay. I'm good. I'll just be sideways. Yeah, don't be sideways. It's a screw right. world to be in. It's a screw world. It's a mad world. That concludes another episode of Avalon Mentors Podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, would you kindly thumb the like button and also give the show a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on. Until next time, cast off the works of darkness, put upon you the armor of light. So long.